belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for February 14th, 2021 is called Learning from the Remnant. The teacher this week is Laura Holland, and the location is the Holland Homestead in Fayetteville, Arkansas. God answered fire with fire. God's judgment intensifies. The Lord turned on arrogant Assyria. The Lord's anger against Israel. God's anger with Israel's arrogance. Judgment against Assyria. Doom to Assyria. These are just a few examples of the various heading titles for our scripture reading today. Hey, happy Valentine's Day. Thanks for joining us on this morning on a day dedicated to love as we discuss God's wrath. So we've been going sequentially through the book of Isaiah. And last week, we heard a beautiful message of hope from Reuben, who discussed, in part, the kingdom promise of shalom and wholeness ultimately revealed to us in Jesus. Giving a quick sneak peek to our portion of scripture ends today, it's a message of hope. But the bulk of the passage today, the middle of this hope sandwich, if you will, is about God's wrath, God's judgment, and God's response to arrogance. Now, as much as I want to highlight that this judgment is wrapped in hope, because it is, and there is a truth that we can rest in when we realize that, I don't want to jump to sugarcoating things too quickly, because as important as hope is, We miss a lot of important things when we refuse to acknowledge the whole of God's character. So today I'll be using wrath, judgment, and anger interchangeably with righteous occasionally as an adjective to describe it more fully. And here's the thing, they're not all synonyms, but they all speak to pieces of what we're dealing with today. Anger is a precursor to judgment. Judgment calls for justice. Wrath is an expression of anger. Now, some of us might have been taught that anger was wrong or negative or needed to be always controlled or bridled. Goodness, even the Bible says not to let it get the best of us. So when our upbringing or or culture seem to be giving us mixed messages, looking to Jesus for what he modeled is always a good idea. So we know that Jesus was perfect. He only did what he saw his father do. And we saw Jesus express his anger. And he did this when people were being taken advantage of, when trust was being placed somewhere other than God. So anger in and of itself is not wrong or sinful. But the real story here really isn't God's wrath. It's why he's angry. What is it signaling? What led to this response? Because I don't think we actually avoid talking about God's wrath because of what it reveals about his character. I think we avoid it because it has a potential to reveal something about our own character. So our scripture reading today is Isaiah 9, 8 through 21, and Isaiah 10. I'm going to focus on a few sections more than others. So if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to read through both chapters on your own this week. So there are two sections within this scripture that look at God's judgment. The first looks at God's judgment of Israel, and the second looks at God's judgment of their enemies, the Assyrians. 
we're not going to camp out today talking about the judgment received by their enemies. Because I don't want to speak for everyone, but for most, that's not a difficult thing to wrap our minds around. Our enemies getting what's coming to them? Awesome. Sure. So, well, even that definitely does speak to God's righteousness and his sense of justice and the steadiness that he, he exhibits. We're not pushing ourselves if we only look at what others have done wrong. So instead, today, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 9, 8 through 10, 4. It's a chunk of scripture. So while I'm reading through the New English translation, I am going to be providing some commentary and context and will occasionally be adding in phrasing from other versions that help me to wrap my mind around what Isaiah was saying to the people of Israel in this section. So if you want to read along, we're using NET as our base. As you're reading along, some context that might be helpful is that the bulk of what we're about to read has already happened to those who are hearing it. So this speech is addressing past actions of Israel, judgments of God that have already been seen, and then the reactions of, to those from the people of Israel. So because of this, the original hearers presumably should be listening to this and be thinking, yeah, we've seen this. We did this. We've experienced it. But as you're about to hear, their arrogance might get in the way of hearing that this is for and about them. So let's dive in. God's judgment intensifies. The sovereign master, God, decreed judgment on Jacob, and it fell on Israel. All the people were aware of it, the people of Ephraim and those living in Samaria. So this was not a passive-aggressive judgment. This wasn't a secret judgment. We're told they were all aware that this was happening. Yet, with a pride and an arrogant attitude, they said, bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild with chiseled stone. The sycamore fig trees have been cut down. We'll replace them with cedars. As the message version says here, they dismiss God's judgment decree saying, things aren't that bad. We can handle what comes. We'll just rebuild bigger and finer. Then the Lord provoked their adversaries to attack them. He stirred up their enemies. Syria from the east and the Philistines from the west, they gobbled up Israelite territory. Despite all this, his anger does not subside and his hand is ready to strike again. The people did not return to the one who struck them. They did not seek reconciliation with the Lord who commands armies. So the Lord cut off Israel's head and tail, both the shoots and stalk in one day. The leaders and the highly respected people are the head, and the prophets who teach lies are the tail. The leaders of this nation were misleading people, and the people were being led, or being led were destroyed. So here the message says that those being led ended up lost and confused. So the sovereign master, the Lord, was not pleased with their young men. He took no pity on their orphans and widows, for the whole nation was godless and did wicked things. Every mouth was speaking disgraceful words. Some versions say speaking foolishness. In general, what we know is that their outward actions were evidence of their inward godlessness. But despite all this, his anger does not subside and his hand is ready to strike again. For evil burned like a fire. The message says that their wicked lives raged like an out of control fire. I'm terrified of fire. So this is terrifying to me. 
So their lives raged like an out-of-control fire. They consumed thorns and briars. It burned up the thickets of the smoke. They went up in smoke. This out-of-control fire was consuming everything in their path. Because of the anger of the Lord who commands armies, the land was scorched and the people became fuel for the fire. God let their uncontrolled ways continue. The natural consequences of their actions were being seen. That's what, that, that's what that's telling us. So here is a list of some outward evidence of their inward evil. People had no compassion for one another. They devoured on the right, but were still hungry. They ate on the left, but were not satisfied. People even ate the flesh of their own arm. Several versions say not even their children were safe from their insatiable hunger. So are we to hear that they're literally cannibals eating their own arms or children? Probably not. But this speaks to the fact that boundaries are gone. People are willing to do unthinkable things to each other to satisfy their desires. Manasseh fought against Ephraim and Ephraim against Manasseh. Together they fought against Judah. They are turning on each other. Civil strife is a regular way of life for them. Despite all this, his anger does not subside and his hand is ready to strike again. So now as we move to Isaiah 10, this is where the speech turns from naming what has happened in the past to prophesying where they're headed in the future if their behavior doesn't change. So Isaiah 10, those who enact unjust policies are as good as dead. Those who are always instituting unfair regulations to keep the poor from getting fair treatment and to deprive the oppressed among my people of justice, others who rob my destitute people of dignity so that they can steal what widows own and loot what belongs to orphans. What will you do on judgment day when destruction arrives from a distant place? To whom will you run for help? We discussed a few weeks ago how they were turning to conspiracy theories, those who speak to the dead and foreign leaders for help instead of to God. So Isaiah is bringing those issues back up here, asking, who's going to help you now? Where will you leave your wealth? Other versions ask, what good will your money do you? You will have no place to go except to kneel with the prisoners or to fall among those who have been killed. Despite all this, his anger does not subside and his hand is ready to strike again. So what do we do with this? One way we've discussed that we approach what we're reading is by considering what it meant for those hearing it originally, what it meant for the early church, and what it means for us today. So we're told at the beginning of this section that the original hearers have already been told all of this, and they responded with pride and arrogance again and again. We can do it better. But we also know if we jump down to the end of our scripture reading today that there is some hope for them yet. If we go to Isaiah 10, 20 through 22, we read, At that time, those left in Israel, those who remain of the family of Jacob, will no longer rely on a foreign leader that abuses them. Instead, they will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will come back, a remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For those your people, Israel, are as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Only a remnant will come back. So, I mean, yeah, this is a real good news, bad news situation. A remnant will be restored, but all this judgment that you've heard about is still happening. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know how I said that basically everyone was so far gone to evil? Well, there's a remnant. So when we ask how this would have been understood by the early church, as Ellen pointed out in our teaching team meeting, they're the remnant, or more specifically, they're the descendants of the remnant. As they're listening to this, they're reliving their history. They have the benefit of knowing the hope that was promised has been realized. They're the believers of Jesus and they trust his hope. So they're listening to their history, their story, their people. It's confirmation that they're where they belong. So because of this, they are also able to hear the message of hope that is woven throughout the passages of judgment. They know that even though there was the real doom and woe experienced and discussed, that ultimately people would realign their affections. They would turn back toward God and they would restore their relationships with each other. Despite being part of a group described as godless and evil, that wasn't where their story ended. Through it all, this is a reminder to them of God's righteousness and faithfulness. When talking about the idea of the remnant in the teaching team meeting, Tim recalled a talk with Latasha Morrison, the founder of the racial reconciliation movement, Be the Bridge. And in this talk, she discusses the idea of the remnant. In it, she shares that in each society, each moment in time, there are people who aren't going with the flow, who aren't the perpetrators of whatever evil has happened. They're the ones standing up for what is right it might be described as a bit ahead of their time. There is always a remnant. She then asks the question, are we part of the remnant today? Those in the early church hearing the story might have found themselves asking, are we part of the remnant now? But what about us? Are we part of the remnant? Before you answer, I wanna reread the list of things that the people of Israel did to warrant God's judgment. They were prideful. They were arrogant. They trusted in the wrong things and people. They turned against God. They failed to seek reconciliation. Leaders misled people and prophets lied. Both of those led people to be lost and confused. People were speaking foolishness. Their outward behaviors were evidence of their inward evil and profane nature. They were out of control. They had no compassion for one another. They were doing unthinkable things to each other. They were turning on each other and civil war was breaking out. They were supporting unjust policies and robbing people of dignity. As we read through those, did the Holy Spirit stir your heart a bit? Did these just sound like past problems? Or do these sound like what you read on Facebook this morning or saw on the news last night? Do any of these descriptors describe you because I know that I recognize a few areas that I really wish didn't describe me, but they're a little too familiar. But this is where we have the advantage of being able to look back and learn from those who came before. Because it's really easy to recognize those areas where we're still missing the mark. But what response can we glean from those whose story moved forward? Those from whom our faith story continues. When we look at the remnant and what changed with them, two things are called out. They stopped looking to earthly leaders for protection and they put their trust back in God. And in doing so, they reconciled with God. 
So their trust was realigned to where it belonged, and they sought reconciliation with God. We know from Jesus's teaching in Matthew 5 that before seeking reconciliation with God, we are called to reconcile with each other. So it seems that the antidote to prideful arrogance is realigning our trust and reconciling with each other. This loops back to what Reuben talked about last week when he shared about reaching those on the margins and how we're part of God's kingdom. Reconciliation brings shalom and wholeness. But have we misinterpreted communal shalom and wholeness as a promise of personal well-being? Have we missed the point that this story was for and about a community? So the judgment and the punishment and yes, the ultimate well-being was experienced by everyone. As Alex pointed out in our meeting, the natural consequences fell upon everyone, even those who comparatively were actually pretty good people. Even today, when doom-scrolling social media might lead you to believe otherwise, there are actually some pretty good people. But on our road to shalom, we can seek to do better than pretty good. When we recognize these areas needing change in our society today, I'd submit that it's worth considering that addressing them will take a communal response. Reconciliation is gonna be more than meeting in a preconceived middle. And sometimes we will need to prioritize shalom and wholeness of all over our own personal well-being. What moves into focus if we shift our understanding of what God has promised? Because God's judgment of Israel wasn't him sitting in the sky pulling levers each time they did something wrong. It was him saying this isn't the right way or the best way. It was him seeking restoration. It was him grieving over the choices they were making and the natural consequences they brought forth. Many of us are grieving today over the natural consequences of the same issues in our time. But like the prophet Isaiah, with a lens of hope, we can see a different way. We can see a new way. This isn't a Pollyanna hope. This isn't a hope that ignores reality. As Professor David Orr wrote, hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. This hope is birthed in reality and the belief that we are not stagnant. We can grow and we can become better. We know where to put our hope. And through reconciliation and working for his kingdom on earth, as we celebrate our kingdom with each other, we can move toward shalom. One of the ways that we are reminded of the need for and value of reconciliation is communion. The former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, wrote, we take holy communion not because we are doing well, but because we're doing badly. Not because we have arrived, but because we are traveling. Not because we are right, but because we are confused and wrong. Not because we are divine, but because we are human. Not because we are full, but because we are hungry. I would add, not because we've reached wholeness, but because we are desperately seeking shalom. 
with whom in your life is the Holy Spirit nudging you towards reconciliation? Jesus gathered his friends, including those who would deny him and those who had issues with each other, and asked them to come together to share a meal. He asked that each time they had this meal again, that they remember him and to be reconnected with each other. So may we take this bread and wine in remember a remembrance of Jesus and as a reminder of our connection with each Another way we're reminded of the need for and value of reconciliation is through our giving. We're reminded that each of us have need and everyone has something to give. And we are all in this together. Amen. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchmwa.org. Grace and peace.